Good morning, Gibraltar. Good afternoon, Ankara. And good evening, Bandung. From Washington, D.C., I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss Joe Biden's re-election bid and Spain's historic drought. It's all coming up. Morning, John. How are you? Very well, thanks, Ethan. And yourself? Doing quite well. And I'm a bit jealous today because once again, John, in the course of only a few weeks, you've been given the enormous privilege of telling us about the latest in American politics. Um, well, OK. The, the news here is that uh, U.S. President Biden announced early uh, yesterday that he's running for re-election in 2024. Biden's announcement means that barring a, you know, a political shock for the, the ages... He will be the Democratic presidential candidate next year. Uh, I think early, sh- uh, early polling has showed that the re- uh, Republican voters are, you know, looking more and more likely to choose uh, former President Trump as their nominee. So it's entirely possible that we'll get a, a rematch of the 2020 election. So what's President Biden running on? Biden posted a three-minute video uh, on Tuesday morning with the tagline, let's finish the job. Uh, as he was re-announcing his candidacy. So my my very obvious guess is that Biden will be running on a very similar platform to the one he ran on in 2020. Uh, But sadly for us geopolitical nerds, Ethan, there wasn't a single reference in the whole video to foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, it seems like as much disagreement as there is on domestic issues in the United States, for the most part, the old mantra that uh, politics stops at the water's edge seems to be holding true. You know, there's broad... There's broad agreement on China, the the war in Ukraine, you know, reshoring supply chains. So it seems like the foreign policy dynamic is fairly bipartisan, right? Yeah, I think that's right. There are, of course, differences. Um, but I think most pollsters, when they when they poll the American public, they find that talking about foreign policy doesn't do much to help a candidate's right. chances. Uh, and I think that's because most voters don't really think that foreign policy affects their lives, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think most voters are wrong if that's the case. But... <laughs> John, if if Joe Biden won't talk about his foreign policy record, then by golly, we will. So could you take us to start on the the negative side of the ledger? Okay. well, I think obviously this is all a little bit subjective, but on the negative side, one that really stands out, an event that stands out is is the American military withdrawal from Afghanistan in, in August 2021. I think we all remember the scenes around Kabul's main airport um, during August 2021. You know, desperate Afghans doing everything they could to flee the country. Um, There's really quite moving images. And and 11 American soldiers and more than 70 Afghans were actually killed in a terrorist attack amidst that chaos, um, in in case we forget that. You know, I think depending on your politics, you'll, you'll see different reasons for why this withdrawal went so badly. But at the end of the day... Uh, Biden was holding the pen at the time of the botched operation, so it has to go down as a as an L in the column. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you said, different political reasons, but pretty glaring mistake on his report card. Are, are there any other less obvious mistakes? Yeah, well, contrary to common belief, I'm not sure he's managed the international reaction to America's domestic economic policies um, particularly deftly. In particular, I'm talking about the Inflation Reduction Act, which gave almost $400 billion worth of subsidies for you know electric vehicles and other clean technologies um, to American companies. That really angered Europe and South Korea uh, in particular. Europe then went on and passed uh, similar legislation to make sure it didn't lose investment. But then I think there's a sense around the world that these kind of beggar thy neighbor economic policies end up hurting everyone. Um, you know... I, 
it's definitely impossible to keep everyone happy around the world. And maybe these kinds of reactions to what, you know, were domestic economic policies, maybe the reactions were unavoidable. But I do think uh, it kind of sent a, a signal to Europe that uh, they can't rely on the US when it comes to economic policy. Right. Everyone out for themselves. Yeah. Well, others will probably see his failure to secure a nuclear deal with Iran as a mark against mm-hmm. him too. But what about the positives? Well, <laughs> after just telling you that I don't think he's handled, you know, European economic relations particularly deftly, I do think the administration has handled the Ukraine crisis pretty well. Um, you know, Biden's managed to rally enough domestic support to send what I think is about 80 odd billion dollars and counting of assistance to Ukraine. Um, and barring a few, uh, you know, holdouts, people who disagree, I think he's really made support for Ukraine a bipartisan issue. I'm sure Biden officials remind their European counterparts of that every time uh, the Europeans moan about American first economic policies as well. I think more globally on the Ukraine issue, he's handled that well as well. The US has managed to get a large portion of the world to condemn the Russian invasion, at least when the invasion started. Um, And while I would say many countries, particularly in the global south, have since sort of stepped back from outright criticism of Russia, they're still not supporting Russia. So that's a pretty big win too, I think, for the administration. Um, further afield on China, I think there were some observers who might have worried that Biden wouldn't be tough enough on China, but he's arguably been, arguably been even tougher than his predecessor Trump was um, on China. Policies like the CHIPS Act, which we're all familiar with, the semiconductor bans, they went much further than Trump's you know, more rhetorical fireworks. Uh, and he's also provided, uh, presided over the establishment of AUKUS and re-energized U.S. alliances in the Indo-Pacific with South Korea, Japan, and the Philippines. Um, you know, I, I don't want anyone to think that that's me saying that I think his approach is correct. Um, you know, there are differing views on that. Uh, but in terms of calling that a success, I, maybe a more accurate description of Biden's China approach is that I don't think there are many in American politics that would call it a failure. What, what could be the big foreign policy challenges of his or whoever's next term? Look, uh, unless something drastic happens, I think the biggest challenge will still be China, right? Uh, You know, we can hope that the Ukraine war won't still be active by Inauguration Day 2025. Um, But even if it's not, Russia's relationship with NATO, China and the rest of the world will present a huge challenge for for Biden's uh, successor. (laughs) Um, If we zoom out a little bit uh, more broadly, you know, Whoever wins the next presidential election is going to have to manage changing energy geopolitics, particularly the tr- the transition away from Russian energy and, and fossil fuels in general. That, that will be difficult and the geopolitical consequences of that. Closer to the US, immigration will continue to be a huge problem with geopolitical uh, consequences for the US's relationships with Mexico and other Central American countries. We're sitting here in in April 2020, uh, 2023, and Sudan is threatening to turn into a civil war. So that could last for a long time and, and reshape African uh, geopolitics as well. In the Middle East, you've got Iran and Saudi Arabia jockeying for influence. You've got Israel's rightward turn. Uh, there's a delicate web of relationships and grievances throughout the Middle East that the US president will inevitably have to be involved with. Uh, and Turkey is super delicately poised right now as well. There's a lot riding on on its election in just a few weeks. I mean, the challenges. Uh, the, the, there's there's no shortage of challenges, Ethan. I I could go on. I liked that little uh, predecessor successor slip up you almost had there. Which brings <laughs> me to my next question. My last question here. I've been giving you nothing but softballs this whole time. So let's throw something with a little more heat. If the election ends up as a 2020 rematch. Who will world leaders be rooting for? (laughs) 
Um, that is a tough one. I <laughs> think it depends on who you ask. Um, based on your excellent interview about uh, European security with Dr. Liana Fix uh, last Friday, I think it was, it seems to me pretty fair to say that America's transatlantic allies would prefer Biden. But on the other hand, I, I suspect that Russia and the Saudis and maybe Israel, perhaps China might prefer Trump. Um, but, you know, that's that's a guess and I don't I don't pretend to know. So, you know what, I'm actually going to plead, plead the fifth, as you Americans say on that question. <laughs> I'd recommend that you do. <laughs> Today's show is sponsored by Roka. We really like newsletters, and we've got another recommendation that you've got to check out, The Current by Roka News. Here's what we like about it. It was founded by people who don't like the negative, partisan, and alarmist style of news. It favors facts over opinions, and it tells you what you need to know for the day so you can hold your own at happy hour. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right. Welcome back, John. Next up, we're talking climate and a major drought in Europe. So what's the story here? Yeah, this is a story that's kind of flown a little bit under the radar if you're not in Europe. Um, and it's Spain's ongoing now years long drought, which is starting to reach a crisis point. Uh, last week, Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez delivered a speech in the Spanish parliament where he warned that the drought was quickly becoming a central political and territorial challenge. Uh, he's right. Uh, I mean, already the drought has led to all sorts of legal battles between Spanish provinces where farmers and other water-intensive industries are trying to secure water rights. Um, and the local assembly in Spain's most um, important agricultural province, Andalusia, uh, they're considering a plan to rezone protected wetlands in order to give farmers access to the water. Uh, Prime Minister Sanchez and the EU's top environmental officials have vowed to do everything they can to block that that measure, um, so, you know, clearly the politics of that could get pretty messy pretty quickly. Give us a sense here. You said the, the drought's flown under the radar. How serious is it? Really serious, like very serious. More more than a quarter of Spanish territory is in emergency drought conditions. Total water reserves are around 50% of their capacity and, and some reservoirs are far, far lower. Um, you know, plus last year was the driest year in Spain since 1800, the hottest since at least 1960. And temperatures this April right now have been closer to temperatures in July, the averages of uh, in July. So, you know, the heat isn't going anywhere. And Spain is a, an important agricultural country, you know, all sorts of delicious fruits, vegetables, grains, what have you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and even the most delicious of their crops, like olives, um, they're designed to, uh, to grow in drier climates, right? Mediterranean climates. But this ongoing drought is still so bad. It's so bad that even olive plants can't manage it. And that's leading to things like record increases in, in olive oil prices. All told, this drought is expected to destroy up to 3.5 million hectares of crops. So it's, it's really bad. What's being done about this? I mean, you mentioned the, the political sensitivities here. What are the options? Simply put, there aren't many good options. Um, in Catalonia, that's where Barcelona is, um, reservoirs there are around 27% capacity. Um, some towns have started some serious rationing, water rationing. Uh, I read somewhere that a town, and, and I say a town because the name of the town I can't even begin to pronounce, but um, this town shuts off water between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. and three times a week, a tanker truck brings in water to top up its supplies. 
So pretty pretty serious stuff. Um, Spain also sent an emergency request to the EU for funding uh, that could at least help alleviate the economic hardships of the agricultural sector. Uh, sector. But that won't help bring rain, right? Um, Spain's already received 70 million from the EU, uh, but it's a it's more of a Band-Aid and it won't fix the fundamental issue here, which is drought. This, this all sounds familiar. I lived in uh, Utah for a bit in the Western US, and there's a huge political debate there and, and other Western states between farmers and, and ski resorts and residents about you know who should get the water and, and what it should be used for. Yeah, I think it's an important point. It's not just the US either. It's a huge thing in Australia where I'm from. I grew up in water restrictions. This is a problem that is you know getting more and more widespread around the world. And I think that's that's the point. Spain Spain is facing a crisis that a lot of us are going to face, if not now, then eventually. Um, and climate crises have a, pe- a peculiar way of sneaking into just about every facet of society as well. You know, hydroelectric dams in Spain, which account for about 16% of, of the country's energy mix now, they're functioning at their lowest capacity in almost 30 years. So Spain may have no option to lean into, you guessed it, fossil fuels, which only exacerbates the climate crisis. So it's it's a complex web of issues um, and can really start to take on a life of its own once it gets going. Well, thanks, John. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ethan. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Authorities in Thailand have issued a stay-at-home order as extreme temperatures roll across Southern Asia. Last week, Thailand recorded its highest ever temperature of 45.5 degrees Celsius, which is about 114 degrees Fahrenheit. Former Peruvian president Alejandro Toledo has been extradited from the U.S. back to Peru to face corruption charges. Toledo, interestingly, is being held in the same prison currently holding another two former presidents, Alberto Fujimori and Pedro Castillo. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov was in New York this week where he presided over a meeting of the U.N. Security Council. That's news in and of itself, but you'll really be surprised to see what topic he chose to discuss Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see what it was. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.